open up your Bibles to Ruth 4. Open up your Bible or your app to Ruth 4. And I just want to give a little bit of a primer. I want to give a little bit uh, of a a rundown on where we're at and how we got to where we're at. Um, So this book named Ruth is uh, is about this, uh, this Moabite woman. And the story starts with uh, Elimelech, this man named Elimelech and his family uh, in Bethlehem. And there's a famine going on in Bethlehem. And, and I think it's God's kind of sense of irony uh, because Bethlehem literally means food. So there is, uh, there is a famine going on in the town called Food. All right? So they need to, or they, they feel the need to, to uh, flee and run away. And they go to this place called Moab, which is not a good decision. Uh, I don't know if you've ever made a bad decision for your family. This one's worse, okay? Uh, this, is, this is not a good decision that Elimelech makes for his family uh, to go to this uh, nation of Moab because God does not like the Moab nation, okay? It was, it was a nation that was built on incest, and uh, oftentimes through Scripture when it's referenced, it's never referenced in a good light. And, um, and even more, Moabite women were not seen as as great choices for wives so we have elimelech takes his family to to moab and he dies we don't know why he dies or how he dies but he dies and he has two sons and he does not leave them instruction or if he did leave them instruction they didn't follow it to not take moabite women for for their wives so we have these two sons and they take these moabite women one of them takes ruth another takes another moabite woman and they die the sons die so everybody dies it's like a shakespeare play and we have, uh, we have Naomi with her two daughters-in-law, okay? And, and, uh, and they're, they're kind of struggling to make ends meet. And, and Naomi tells her daughters-in-law, she says, go back to your families. Um, I've got nothing for you. I don't have any sons that you might uh, marry another, another one of my sons and be taken care of. I've got nothing for you. I don't have a husband to take care of me. I, I, I'm going to die. So... Uh, uh, one of her daughters goes back to uh, to her family in, in Moab, but Ruth, no, Ruth stays with Naomi. Ruth stays with Naomi, and, and, and we get this beautiful picture of, of this commitment and faith towards Naomi. Ruth goes as far to say, uh, where you die, I will die. So we get this beautiful picture of Ruth following Naomi, and, and she leaves Moab, uh, this uh, bad nation of Moab. She comes to be- back to Bethlehem. The famine is over, and uh, and they've got nothing. And and Naomi is pretty upset at God. She says, "I left full, and I've come back empty." And it's just two widows hanging out, not nothing to do for themselves. And and Ruth says, "You know what? Uh, I'm going to go out to the field, and I'm going to glean. That is, I'm going to pick up the scraps uh, and and maybe find some food enough that we might eat this week." So she goes out to, this, out to the field to, to glean uh, in the field to try to find some extra grain and wheat. And, and she stumbles on, not by accident, but by God's design and God's providence, by God's control, she stumbles on the field of Boaz. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing that, that she, is, she ends up in this, in this field that God has purposed, God has specifically designed her to, to do. Um, and, uh, and then we see, the, and, and, and Ruth 2, we, we see this uh, really uh, nice romantic um, situation that comes up, a nice romantic date. It's, it's midday. It's the first day that, that Ruth is out in these fields, and, and Boaz notices Ruth. 
And, and he says, hey, uh, it's lunchtime. Come and eat at my table with, with, my, uh, uh, with my men and my workers here. And, and what's more, if you're thirsty, go and, and take out of my water supply so that you are, you're comfortable and, and you're, you're, you're fed and you're, you're taken care of. And so Ruth is sitting at this table, and, and she's all of a sudden feeling like, wow, I, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sitting at this table of the owner of this field, and, and he has just told me, don't, don't leave my field. Stay in my field because I will protect you. So I don't know what's going through Ruth's mind because she's a woman, and I don't know what goes through women's minds, all right? Hey, it's, guys, let's just be honest, okay? Right? We, we, don't, we don't know. Um, so, uh, but I, I equally don't know what's going on in Boaz's mind either because he, he, he has a really, what seems to be a really good first date, but he's not very good at second dates because nothing happens. We, we see Boaz, and he is, uh, has met Ruth, and, and then he, he doesn't text, doesn't call back doesn't do anything for, for a while, and, and we can get clued into this because um, in, in chapter 2, verse 23, it says, So she kept close to the young women, talking about Ruth, the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, I'll, 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 I'll help you out with, it, with the math here because we learn um, at the beginning of the story that they returned to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So, for those of you, I, I don't, I'm not a farmer, but I had to look this up. That is maybe five or six months, okay? So the first day she's out in the field, she has a conversation with Boaz. And Boaz does not do a good job of following up. He doesn't send her any text messages or phone calls for five months, five or six months. So, so Ruth is like, man, who is this guy? I don't know. Who, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get it. What, what, do you see, is he weird? Like, I don't get it. So she may be, we don't see any other interaction between Ruth and Boaz the entire story. So then it goes, uh, uh, the, the, the wheat harvest is about to end. And Naomi, the mother-in-law, starts playing matchmaker. She's sitting at home and she's, and she's like, hey, we're going to start playing matchmaker because, you know, Ruth, the wheat harvest is going to end and we got nothing to do for ourselves. We, got, we, need, we need some help here. Okay, we can't just keep gleaning out in the field if there's no wheat to be if there's no wheat to glean. So here's what I'm going to do: go take a shower, put on your fanciest dress, put oil put oil on on you so you look nice, put perfume on, okay, and and go to where Boaz is. Now, see, I like this because Ruth goes to where Boaz is. Now, I'm not a, I, I don't think that uh, uh, girls uh, I don't think all the high school girls over here and any other single ladies I don't think you should chase after dudes, okay. But you can get in their way, all right? Because sometimes guys are thick-headed, and we don't know what's going on. So sometimes we just need a girl to get in our way, and they go, oh, hey, a girl's there, right? So uh, <laughs> that's kind of what happens to that's kind of what happens to Boaz. That's kind of what happened with my wife. Um, <laughs> um, if you want to know that story, it's funny. Um, so, uh, so we get this picture of Ruth going to, uh, to where Boaz is in the middle of the night, and he's on the threshing floor, and he's working all night, and, and he's working hard, and, uh, and he lays down on his pile of grain, probably to safe keep it from robbers, so if anybody's going to steal his grain, they have to go through him first. And, uh, and Ruth comes, and she sneaks up, and, and she uh, lifts up his blanket and, and sits at his feet. Now, if, if we're in... 2017. So I don't want to miss this illusion here. Uh, Ruth was essentially offering herself to Boaz. She's saying, "Hey, ha- have your way with me. I'm I am your servant." So not not a good choice. Don't do that today. It's not a good thing to do. But we also see from the text. I, I, well, 
I'm, I'm, I'm reading this text, and I'm reading it, and I don't see anywhere here where Boaz takes advantage of Ruth either. I think that she gave him every opportunity to, and, and he doesn't. This shows the character of Boaz. Now, you might read that differently, but I don't see, I don't see anywhere in the text where Boaz does anything with Ruth. In fact, he, does, he just blesses her. He says, let no one know that you came, that you, you, may, you may be disgraced. Let no one know that you're here. And in fact, when you leave, here, open up, open up your, your, your blouse, and you're, he's just going to pour on grains of wheat. He said, go home. So this should, this should, uh, uh, this should tide you over for, for a long while. He, in fact, blesses her as she leaves and says, don't let anybody see that you were here. But they've got this little conversation going on, and she says, redeem us. You're a close relative of ours. And we, get a, we, we understand now who, kind of a little bit of who Boaz is because he says, yeah, I'm a relative, and I can redeem your land, and I can redeem your family, but there's one that's closer than me. So he has, uh, he has watched Ruth and Naomi, and he knows their situation. He knows where they were from, and he knows that there is another relative that's closer than he is. So that, and, and as far as the redemption law goes, that relative had the first responsibility and priority to redeem Ruth and Naomi. So Boaz says, I can't redeem you unless this other guy doesn't want to. That's where we pick up the story. Okay, that's where we, that's where we pick up the story now, and uh, we're going to... Uh, Right in Ruth 4, okay, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and read it, and you can follow along in your Bibles or on your phones. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, my friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is another one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot buy it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in, uh, in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the, rede- to the elders and all the people, you are my witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malin. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are my witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make, you, make the woman who, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act wor- worthily in Ephrathah and, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give give you by this young woman. That's good. Let's pray. Father God, I would, I would ask that you would help us understand this passage, that you'd help us understand the book of Ruth, 
and not not just read it and and listen for for a bit and leave and, and not apply it to our lives, but God, would you open up our hearts and minds? Would you soften our hearts so that um, we might apply this to our lives and learn of your goodness and your redemptive power in our own lives? Father, we know that as we read this story that, that Boaz is a, points to you, that Boaz redeems Ruth and Naomi and you redeem us. Father, may we see ourselves in this story. May we glorify you better because of uh, because of the, we see how, how amazing your redemptive power is. And Father, I would, I would ask as well that you would vindicate your team, the Seahawks, and you would help the Patriots lose today. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said? Yeah. I didn't hear you, Kathy. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, no, God's okay, it's fun. Um, <laughs> all right. I... Uh, I like I like movies. Uh, I don't think there's. I mean, everybody here. I think we like movies, right? Uh, uh, I, there's a certain kind of movie that I really enjoy, though, um, and it's the one that gets you on the edge of your seat that you that that uh, that has a big plot twist at the end, and and kind of like everything kind of you know in a movie, everything kind of comes to a climax, and you're looking for whatever is supposed to happen, and, and the best kind are the ones that have this big twist at the end. And I'm like. Oh my gosh, I did not see that coming. He was dead the whole time. Oh, that's why, oh, that's why she never talked with him in the restaurant. Oh, wow. If you haven't seen Sixth Sense, spoiler, sorry. Um, <laughs> right, or, you know what I'm talking about, like, we're like, oh, he was asleep during that part. Oh my gosh, I get it. And, and this whole thing was a dream. And, and right, those are the kind of movies, I'm talking about Inception, those are the kind of movies that I'm like, wow. I, I love those. They get me on the edge of my seat, and you you know that that there's this there's the point in the movie where everything flips around. I love that. We can all think of movies like that. We can all think of stories like that. Every good story has that moment, right? And this is where we're at in verse in, in chapter four. This is where we're at in chapter four. We uh, uh, Ruth comes to Boaz and says, uh, "You can be my redeemer. You can save me." And Boaz says, "Actually, there's someone else that." is supposed to save you. There's someone else that's supposed to redeem your land and redeem your family. So if I'm going to redeem you, I gotta, by law, this person has to have the first option to do so. So th- this, is, this is where we're at in the story. We don't know, uh, if you're just reading the story, you don't know how it's going to end up. We know the end of the story. We know uh, that, that things work out for Ruth and Naomi, that Boaz does redeem them. But this is like the turning point in the story. This is, the, this is the climax. This is the most important part of the story. In verse 1, I'm just going to read verse, uh, the first few verses here again. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. So th- we, we see this... Uh, uh, where we see the stage set for something to happen. And we've been looking at the story of Ruth for the last five weeks now, and we, we've seen the character of Boaz all throughout the story. We've seen the character of Boaz all throughout the story, and, and this should be of no surprise to us of, of Boaz's actions here. He's a good guy. He's a good man. And, just, and, and, and we know this is happening the day after that, a little romantic encounter with Ruth and Boaz. 
We know that, that, that he sent Ruth away, and, that, and it says, in the morning he came and sat down at the gate. It was the next day that he was there. He didn't waste any time. He didn't waste any time uh, uh, getting to the task of figuring out how to redeem Ruth and Naomi. We see uh, through the whole story of Ruth, we see that Boaz is willing. Again, he wastes no time. He, he's, uh, she, he understands, oh yeah, yeah, Ruth needs to be redeemed. Their land needs to be redeemed. Their family needs to be redeemed. I'm going to go take care of this right now. He's willing and he's prepared. He's completely prepared. We, we, we see this is his character all throughout the story. He's prepared. And, and in fact, he has so much forethought that he knows exactly what needs to happen at the gate. He says, if there's going to be a land transfer, there needs to be witnesses. So I'm going to sit down here and I'm going to make sure that I can gather up 10 elders so they can sit and be witnesses to, to what's about to happen. He comes prepared. He knows exactly what needs to happen. And, and he knows all the details about it, too. He knows all the details about Ruth and Naomi. He knows all the details about their family. He knows all the details about their land. He comes prepared. He knew what needed to happen legally. He needed witnesses. There needed to be his weird sandal transfer. Boaz was deliberate. He had intentionality. He didn't kind of wander into, into the city at noon and kind of like think, oh yeah, maybe I'll stumble upon this other this other redeemer, this unnamed redeemer guy that, that has a chance to redeem Ruth and Naomi. You know, I might, maybe I'll stumble, I don't know, maybe I'll do my errands first, and then if I get to it, I'll get to it. It's kind of down on my list. No, he was deliberate. He was intentional. He said, this is going to end today. This is going to, uh, I'm going to take care of the matter today. He was by the gate. He left nothing to chance. He says, I know that the, re- that the unnamed redeemer, this other redeemer is going to pass through here if he goes to the city, and I'm going I'm to catch him if he does. I'm going to call his name if he does. And I think most importantly, Boaz was unselfish. He, he, yeah, he, 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 kind of, he kind of had an eye for Ruth, we see in the story. And you know, if, if he got the land, that he also gets the widow, he also gets Ruth and Naomi. He kind of had an eye for Ruth. But I, I really think that he was unselfish. He was, first and foremost, wanted to take care of Ruth and Naomi to make sure that they were taken care of. And for them to be taken care of, their land had to be uh, redeemed. So he, he knew, okay, yeah, in order to take care of them, their land needs to be redeemed. I want them to be set up. I want them to be successful. I want them to be taken care of. If it's me, if, it's, if, if I can do it, then that's great. But I want to make sure that something happens. He was unselfish in his actions towards Ruth and Naomi. We see it all throughout the story. See, I like Boaz. I, I don't think that's any secret if we've been listening to this sermon series. I like Boaz. He, he's, he's a guy that is prepared. He's a hard worker. He likes responsibility. He's kind of a model for what young men and, uh, sh- should uh, strive to be. We also know that he's the hero of the story, but Jesus is the hero of the book, right? He's the hero of the story, but Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Okay? And, he, and, and Boaz foreshadows Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Boaz. So really, when we say, yeah, well, yeah, it's good to be like Boaz, it's good to be like Jesus. It's good to be hardworking. It's good to take on responsibility. It's good to take care of people that are around you. Men, especially, we can learn from this. He seems like a guy that has his driver's license, if you know what I mean. Like, he's not 25, sitting at home, playing video games, doesn't have his driver's license. He seems like he's a guy that has momentum, okay? Uh, it's, a, it's the kind of guy that, that we, you know, we want to we be around. He's not riding his bicycle to work. Verse 4, 
Oh, this is going to be a fun Sunday. Verse 4. Boaz says, So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of these sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. Boaz is essentially saying, There's one other person that wants to redeem it, and that's name's me. Okay? And he said, this, The other redeemer says, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I see him kind of stumbling over his words here. Oh, I can't, oh man, I can't can't redeem it for myself, uh, lest I impair my inheritance. I can't can't do that, sorry. I cannot redeem it, You, you you can take it. It's this, we get this contrast between Boaz and this unnamed Redeemer. And I, I love Boaz's uh, interaction here because he's, he's, like a, he's like a TV infomercial. He's like, hey, buy this land for one easy payment and a sandal transfer. And at no cost to you, we'll throw in Ruth the Moabite. If you act right now, you'll get the grumpy mother-in-law, right? It's, <laughs> Ruth, uh, Boaz does a, such a good job of selling this. And, and he... Exactly what, happen, exactly what he intends happens. This unnamed redeemer says, no, 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 I can't take it because um, that Moabite woman comes with the land. And, and essentially he's saying, I don't want her in my, in my line. Because if I take her in and I have a son with her, then that son's going to have a part in my inheritance. And my inheritance will be divided. So now it's going to my my other family and my this son that I've had with Ruth. He didn't want his inheritance divided, and I think he didn't want his he didn't want a Moabite in his inheritance line. He didn't say anything until he realized, oh, she is she's a Moabite. See this guy, man, we can contrast Boaz and this unnamed redeemer all day because this unnamed redeemer, he shows up kind of out of nowhere, right? And we, didn't, we don't really know he's here until, uh, until this interaction between uh, Ruth and Boaz. But this, Boaz knows exactly what's going on with the family. They, he knows, oh yeah, they, they went to Moab, they came back, they all died. Ruth and Naomi are widows. This guy, this unnamed guy, he doesn't know what's going on. He's like the uncle that shows up every 15 years and, and like doesn't realize that you've gotten married and stuff. Like, he's, this, he's, kind of, he's kind of not involved in his family. See, family is supposed to, we're supposed to watch out for each other, right? supposed to be involved in each other's lives. We're supposed to understand what's going on. We're supposed to help when things are going wrong. And that is why God instituted the law of the Redeemer. So that family could watch out for each other and, and we'd have a safety net to fall back on. But this guy, he doesn't know anything what's going on. He says, oh, there's, there's land? Yeah, I'll take some land, I guess. He's like, oh, don't you realize that the land comes with Ruth, the Moabite, and Naomi? Because Elimelech died and, and his sons died. Don't, don't, don't you remember all that stuff? Oh, shoot. Um, oh, gosh, when was that funeral? I missed it. Um, uh, no, I, I don't, I didn't, no, I didn't know that stuff. Oh, she's a Moabite? I, no, I, you know, gosh, I got somewhere to be. No, you're good, right? Like, he, he's kind of a deadbeat uncle. He kind of shows up out of nowhere and, and, and then doesn't, doesn't help his family that, that God has instituted to do so. Where the reasons, the one reason is clear that, that this unnamed redeemer doesn't want to uh, take uh, and, uh, redeem the, the land from Naomi. Because he, he doesn't want 
his line and his, his inheritance divided up at all. And essentially, he doesn't want Moab, a Moabite to come into his inheritance line. She was from Moab, and this guy knew, hey, Moab was bad. And, and he, you know, at this point, he's realizing, okay, yeah, Limelech goes over there, and he dies, his sons die. Man, I, if I marry Ruth, am I going to die too? I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. And he would, of course, lose his inheritance, or his inheritance could be divided up. Could be divided up with a Moabite. I don't want a Moabite in my line. And what a contrast between Boaz and this unnamed guy. Now, the Bible's pretty specific, right? If we're, if we're reading through the Bible, it's pretty specific a lot of times. It's specific on dates, and it's specific on times, and it's specific on kings and nations and names especially. And this guy comes out of nowhere, and he does not get a name. That should, that should trigger something to you. He does not get a name. There's no name for this guy who refuses to redeem Naomi and Ruth. Because the Bible names people that are important, and it doesn't name people that aren't. So this guy is, is unimportant to the story. He, he, he's kind of failed. He's kind of a loser. He, he's, so the Bible doesn't name him. But Boaz is the hero. He, he ends up redeeming Ruth and Naomi. Now, I, um, I feel like it would be, um, I would be disobeying the Spirit if I didn't just take a sidestep right now and talk about um, something that is, is in our current culture. We, we, we can't avoid it. Um, I think we all, uh, we all are aware that there is um, immigration issues going on in our country. And I think if we didn't talk about it, especially now when we're talking about Ruth, then we've failed because uh, we have a book of the Bible that God has orchestrated and put together called Ruth. It's a book of the Bible that is named after an immigrant from a place that God did not like. So obviously there's some importance here. There's something to, to think about here. And I, I don't want to step on toes politically, but I, I, I want to encourage us to think biblically about what's going on in our country right now. I want to encourage us to think biblically about immigration and refugees. I'm going to read a quote by um, this guy. His name's David Platt, and he is like the the best guy when it comes to. He's a pastor, and he's the, he's like the he's like the best guy when it comes to uh, foreign missions and, and relief work and and refugee crisis. He's just awesome. And this is what he says. He says much of our response to the refugee crisis and the immigration crisis now seems to flow from our view of the world that is far more American than biblical, far more concerned with the preservation of our own country than the accomplishment of the Great Commission. Those are hard-hitting words. For, for, for people here who, me especially, has, has had to bite my tongue numerous times or delete a post on Facebook that I knew I shouldn't write or accidentally post something or comment on something that I knew I probably shouldn't have, this is, these are hard-hitting words. I, I, I don't want to point fingers at you, but... Maybe the Holy Spirit is. Um, I want to encourage us that we would have a biblical view of immigration and refugees. And I have just a few points here to go over. First, that God establishes the government for the protection of his people. We see that in Romans 13. You can look it up, Romans 13, 1 through 4. Among other things, it says, There is no authority except from God, and that God establishes the governments and the rulers. 
goes on to say that we're called to pray for those rulers. We're called to pray for those officials. Their first job is to protect their people. So according to God's design, responding to a refugee and immigrant immigration crisis, it will lead naturally to political discussions. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we must maintain biblical foundations in these discussions. We do that by participating in politics, participating in elections. We must hold these officials accountable to do good as we pursue the good ourselves. But I want to be clear, be careful that our discussions and passions don't take us out of the biblical realm of our worldview. That we don't get swept up in other things and we want to keep the Bible and God's heart first. Second point, the church is called to provide shelter first to the household of God and then to others. Galatians 6.10 says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are out who are of the household of faith. As Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, he's, he's saying, hey, make sure you take care of people, but first make sure you take care of the people in the church. And today we, uh, we, we picked up our offering, and, and there is an envelope in there that you could give to the family care. And that, is, that goes to help people in our church that fall on hard times, that need a little extra help sometimes. And that, that, that money is first for Northview and then for the community around us. We have a lot of people coming in here that need help, need gas cards, or need, need help paying rent, or help paying a phone bill. And there's, you don't see that, but there's a lot of people from our community that come in and ask for help. And that's what that goes towards. We're, sub, we're first to provide shelter and help to the household of God, and then to others. Matthew 25 shows us that God is a God of justice. Matthew 25 says, For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you and and, and naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. Now, we can parse this out, and we can, re- we, can, we can say, oh yeah, Jesus said what you did to the first of these, my brothers, referring to his family, you did to the least of these. But God's compassion does not stop there. So I, I, God is a God of justice. God is a God of compassion. And you can, you can challenge me on this, and I will, I, will lay down my, I will lay down my argument. If you can find somewhere in Scripture where God is against the immigrant, against the refugee, against those who have been displaced, against those who have fallen on hard times. I, I, I certainly can't find it in the scripture. It might be there. I don't know. But all I know is that uh, what, I, what I see a lot of is that God cares for those who are displaced and cares for those who have a hard time caring for themselves. Last point. God has a heart for the refugee, especially as a means of displaying the gospel. As I said before, we have a book in the Bible that's named after an immigrant, named after someone who's fleeing from a country. So certainly God cares about that as means of displaying his gospel. In Ruth 2.12, this is from the mouth of Boaz. He says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. And he says this, Under whose wings you have come to take what? Take refuge. 
So is God a God for the refugee? Yes, he is. Is God a God for the immigrant? It seems to appear so. Again, I'm not, I'm not trying to convince you to fall politically on one side of the fence or another. I, I, I'm not I'm arguing for that. But I, would, I want to encourage us to make sure that we're, we're looking at things through the lens of Scripture, looking at things through the lens of the Bible. And then we can, there are some things we can do. We can pray. Pray for not only the government officials, but pray for those who have been displaced because of terror, who are seeking refuge, who are immigrants. Pray for, pray for those people. Commit to having a biblical worldview on immigration and refugees. Think biblically before forming our opinions and posting things on Facebook and responding to things on Facebook. I'm in the same boat. I've got I to gotta remember to do that as well. And lastly, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Live out justice in our lives. What does that look like for you in Mill Creek here? What does that look like to love justice and do mercy? Does that, does that look like maybe giving financially to organizations? Does that look like opening up your home? Does that look like serving with your hands? Does that look like going down to World Relief in Kent, the Seattle Center in Kent, and saying, how can I help? Can I open my door? Can I serve you? How do you where do you need help? So if you're... If, if, you're, if things are going through your mind right now and you want some more things to read, I, I took these, ex, what I said today, I, t- I took an excerpt from um, a lot of what this Pastor David Platt wrote. Um, if you want, I can give you some more info on it, some more articles. And um, it's nothing super comprehensive. It's just, uh, a lot, it's just what a lot of pastors are, have written. And these aren't like fringe weirdo pastors out in the, out in the boonies. These are, these are good pastors that are doing great work around the world. If you are interested in more of that info, you can email me, okay? Brooksa at nview.org. It's on the website, brooksa at nview.org. Or if, if you're upset about what I said today and you like, you shouldn't be talking about this from the stage, you can email me at stevem at nv.org. Okay? <laughs> is that okay? Is that, that, is that fair? I want to get back into our, back into our story here. And uh, I'm sorry, we're going to, if we run, run a little bit late, well, I'll get you out before the Super Bowl, I promise, so we can watch the Falcons win. Um, there's this weird thing that happens in Ruth 4, 7, and 8. There's this weird thing that happens that there, we see this legal transaction, and, and there's this sandal transfer. There's this, there's this weird, it's a sandal transfer. I, I, I don't get it in, in Scripture. There's a lot of things that I don't get in Scripture, but we see that, that, that Boaz, he, he, he says, hey, I want to buy this land. And this other unnamed redeemer says, okay, here you go. Take my sandal. And, and, uh, and we see Boaz now has, has got this guy's sandal. I don't know why that's a thing. Um, there's a lot of things in Scripture that I don't really understand, and this is one of them. But uh, all, I, <laughs> all I know is, uh, this is, this is that was the, the legal transaction. That, that, that showed a legal transaction of, of land or other goods. So what would have happened is you would see, one, you'd see Boaz walking around with three sandals, but you'd also see this other unnamed guy going like this down the road. Oh, like this, right? And everyone would know, like, hey, that guy's only wearing one sandal. Oh, he must have sold something, right? So we see this guy who is walking now without a flip-flop on, without a sandal on, and, and everyone would have known, hey, that guy just sold something. Again, I don't know why, the, why that happens, but I know that there is a legal process to what, what the, this transaction that takes place. It's super romantic, I know. Boaz gets Ruth through a legal transaction. All right, girls, 
what better way, right? <laughs> but that's what happens, and, and, and it points to that whenever, there is, whenever redemption takes place, a legal transaction also takes place. I'm going to read uh, uh, verses 9 and 10, and we, and we see Boaz explaining redemption. It's so great. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are my witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilean and Malin. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife. Cute. It's romantic. To perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are my witnesses this day. I, I, just, I see Boaz standing up and just ex, exclaiming, I have redeemed Ruth and Naomi. I have redeemed the land. This is good news. He's standing up in front of these ten witnesses, these, these, these elders and some other people now that seems to have gathered around, and he is, he is proclaiming that he has redeemed these poor people, that he has set them up in a good place. And he, he, he really shows his heart for redemption. Boaz explains his heart, and he shows his heart for Ruth and Naomi. This is, this is amazing that through the whole story we, we see Boaz had, had this heart for Ruth. I, I want to see you redeemed. I want to see you set up. I want to see you taken care of. He just shows everybody his heart. See, Boaz had purpose. Boaz had purpose. He means to set up Ruth and Naomi for blessing. Boaz had purpose to set up Ruth and Naomi for blessing. Boaz benefits Ruth and Naomi. He says, he, he says okay, I, I know that um, this, what I'm doing for them, redeeming their land, doesn't necessarily benefit me a, a ton, but it's going to benefit them a whole bunch because it's going gonna, it's gonna to continue. It's going to perpetuate the line of inheritance of the dead, of their dead husbands, so that now their family line does not end, but it's going to keep going. How amazing is that? This, without Boaz, Ruth and Naomi and Elimelech's line would have died. But it keeps going, and of little benefit to Boaz, it seems. And Boaz, I think importantly, does not judge their past. Like this unnamed redeemer, oh, from Moab. No, I'm not going to mess with anybody from Moab. Boaz sees Ruth, and he says, wow, look how faithful you are. Look how devoted you are to your mother-in-law. Look how you've you've left your family and come over to worship the one true God. Man, I, I want to. I, I see your heart, and I see how good you are. I, I'm not afraid that you're a Moabite. I'm not. A, I'm not going to judge you by your past. And this is this is important. This is, I think, what some of us need to hear: that God's heart for you is not determined on past mistakes, but future potential. God's heart towards you is not determined by past mistakes, but it is determined by future potential. And that potential does not rest in you. That potential rests in the cross of Jesus Christ. That potential rests in the fact that God looks at you through his son and says, you are righteous, you are clean, you are redeemed. And those past mistakes are not going to determine your future any longer. That's what Boaz is saying to Ruth and Naomi. Yeah, I know uh, you came from a really sinful, really messed up land. I know that you came from a land that God abhors, but I have seen you repent you have turned your back on Moab and taken a step towards God. And I'm going to honor that. And that is exactly what God does through Jesus Christ. 
Your potential is not determined by your past mistakes, but is determined by how much Jesus has done for you. Some of us have, a, have an issue. We come before God and we, we come with this filter and this lens and we think, okay, yeah, I've done all this nasty stuff in my past. I've, I've messed up over and over and over again. And God, you know, I'm really dirty. So I understand if you can only give me a little bit of favor. I don't understand if you can only give me a little bit of blessing. I understand if you can only let me a little ways into your kingdom. I understand that because I was pretty messed up. I'm kind of, a, I'm kind of messed up. I'm kind of junk. Did Jesus die for junk? Did Jesus give his life for junk? No, when he redeemed you, he redeemed you all the way. We can't go to God thinking, okay, yeah, I can only take a, I can only take a toe. I can only step a little bit. I can only put my toe into the kingdom of God. If Jesus has died for you, you are righteous and redeemed completely. There is a legal transaction that happens with Boaz redeeming the land from Naomi and there's a legal transaction that happens when, when Jesus redeemed your soul from sin. We see in, in Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. You can turn there if you'd like. It'll be up on the screen. It says, in him we have what? We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. Do you catch that language in there? There is redemption. There is a legal transaction. There is a, there is a, a, something that happens when, when Jesus is on the cross and he's spilling his blood for you and for me, that our sins are being paid for. In, uh, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.21, uh, Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. He says, him who knew no sin became sin on your behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. There is a transaction that happens. Whenever anything is redeemed, there has to be a legal transaction. There has to be someone giving something and someone receiving something. Jesus gave his life so that we could be redeemed. Let us not forget that. There's a price for redemption. There is a price for redemption. We're going to we're going to remember that price right now. We're going to take communion. I'm going to ask the ushers to to begin to pass out communion. Mark 10:45. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Mark 10:45. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, "The son of man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve. Do you guys know the verse? And give his life as ransom for many. The Son of Man did not come to serve, or not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as ransom for many. That word ransom directly ties to redeem. It gives us that illustration again of a legal transaction. That word ransom means paid. It means cancellation of debt. It means bought back. It means saved and redeemed out of a, uh, out of a, a terrible spot, something that we had no control over. It means liberate and rescue. 
And that is exactly what Jesus has done for you if you know Christ as Savior. That he has ransomed you. That we were sold as, or we were in bondage as sins to, uh, as slaves to sin. And Jesus says, I will buy you out of that. And the cost, the price, well, it's going to be, it's going to be my life. We should not, we should not go lightly to the, the, the table of our Lord. We should not go lightly to communion. But I think we should remember, we should remember the price for that redemption. I don't want us to, I don't want us to come and, and, and think, just, just pass over this, this, this cost. Because just like, just like there was a price for, this, for the redemption of, of, of Ruth and Naomi, and that price was too high to pay for this unnamed redeemer. But it wasn't too high to pay for Boaz. And when, when God looks at you, he says, I, I, I love you so much. You are in bondage and sin. You are kept from me. You cannot get to me no matter how hard you try. There is a veil over your eyes, and I know that in order to bring you back, there has to be a price paid. There has to be redemption paid. There has to be a ransom that is paid. And I will pay that with my life. And I get this picture of, as we're continuing to pass out communion, I get this picture of, of, of Jesus with his disciples. And, and he says... He's, he's there, and, and his disciples don't know what's going on, really, and, and they're, they're, they're just enjoying the Passover, and, and Jesus puts completely new meaning into the Passover feast. And he holds up bread, and he says, hey, you guys don't get it, but I'm, I'm, I'm about to die. My body's going to be broken. And this is, this is what I want you to do. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And he takes this bread, and, he's, and he, he says, my body's going to be broken, and this, just like this bread is broken for you, and he, and he tears this bread. He says, but that's, that's going to be the cost that, that it takes to, to free you. That Jesus was on the cross and his body was continually broken for us. And that's the symbol when we come to take communion is, yeah, that this bread is, is, is broken. Just like Christ's body was, was broken. And just like Christ's body, there's just like his blood was shed to save us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians he says, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself or herself. So we're going to take communion. But I think it's it's appropriate to remember the cost of that redemption. That if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that doesn't come with a simple decision. That comes through his death on the cross. His body broken for you. So if, if, if you've, I don't want to go lightly to the table, but if, if, if you've discerned, if you've, if you've examined yourself and you want to take communion, Jesus said Remember, this is my body that was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
said, there's no shedding of sins or the remission of sins without the shedding of blood. For our sins to be wiped away, there has to be a shedding of blood. He says, drink this, and when you do, do it in remembrance of me. Friends, let's stand and worship.